phone <laughs> for notes, and my phone's battery hopefully will last. If not, I'll start winging it, and there's no telling what happens if I start winging it. <laughs> so, uh, you might get some strange doctrine, well, you might get strange doctrine anyway. Um, hopefully not unorthodox. Um, I'm going to, my, my study on Mark is probably going to be a little slow. I, I don't have enough already, I know, unless I get a bunch of time to study to do next week. But the good thing is, or the bad news is, is I got plenty of notes on the subject of sexuality, and we're going to continue on that, and then I'm going to supplement as I get notes ready for Mark. And I, I think, ultimately, the message always is going to be the same, uh, when we approach the book, when we approach the scriptures, uh, the central theme is just that he is Lord and we're to follow and obey him in all things. And so this week is really going to just be an extension about every other message that we teach, uh, whether it be whether it be Ken and hermeneutics, me on sexuality or me expounding on Mark. Uh, Christ is central to all that we do and all that we are. Um, we left off talking about the baptism of John. Uh, John did baptize, verse 4, in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. That was the fulfillment of verse 2 and 3, the prophecy. And this is, again, in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, it's, it's the, this is logically following in verse 4 that the word of God has come true. And the gospel has begun. The gospel has begun to be preached. It was preached in the wilderness by John. Uh, and that preaching was typified by repentance for the remission of sins. So he gave, he preached, and he demonstrated his preaching by repentance. And there was a following that was a gathering him. He was indeed turning the hearts of the people towards the Lord in verse 5. And there went out from him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem and were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. So we learned a little bit more about, the, about what was happening. The, the, the hearts of the people were being prepared. The hearts of sinners were being prepared. And now in verse, now we're going to go on and hopefully talk more deeply about John and the centrality of his message. Verse 6 through 8 will end at least the introduction part, portion of Mark. And John was clothed with camel's hair and with a girdle of skin about his loins, and he did eat locusts and wild honey and preached, saying, There comes one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. 
I indeed baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Now, I want to talk first and just for, just make a few. I said before a couple of weeks ago, I didn't want to bring you a whole message on John wearing camel's hair and eating locusts. I didn't think you wanted to hear a whole sermon on it. But I, I think this highlights the humility of the servants. Uh, God has always used the weak things to confound the wise. He's always used... Uh, Use the despised things to despise the, to confound the mighty, and he does so here with John the Baptist. Uh, we we get a picture here of of godly modesty, and I think that that comes forward when Christ Himself comments on what John looked like. Uh, if you'll turn to Matthew 11, for instance, we will have Jesus' commentary on the way John the Baptist dressed. And the highlight was the modesty of his appearance. Matthew chapter 11, verses 7 through 9. Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What went you out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the end, where you're going out to see something weak and just flimsy and, 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 and driven whatever the way the wind blows. No, and the answer is always just, just, just no, the assumed no. That's not what you went out to see. But what went you out to see? A man clothed in soft raiment. Behold, they that wear soft raiment are where? They're in kings' houses. But what went you out to see? A prophet? Yeah, and more than a prophet. So that was Jesus Christ was making comments already on how John was dressed. John was dressed in a, not in a noble appearance, not in a way that drew attention to who he was or, or, or any kind of office. Uh, people did not seek him because of his appearance. They sought him because he spoke on behalf of God. And just like his Lord, there was no beauty that they should desire him. The power of John the Baptist was in the Word. There is a modesty, by the way, that's becoming all of us. Uh, we often get to text that zero in on, on modesty for women, but there is a modesty here that is pictured in John the Baptist. John did not live in such a way or dress in such a way that he sought for people to look at. Hey, man, look at how he's dressed. Um, uh, he, he dressed in such a way that was humble and modest, and he dressed also in very convenient material. Uh, that's, that's what we know about camel's hair is it was convenient. Um, so, um, oh, <laughs> well, at least in that day, camel's hair was very cheap. Uh, it was, it was, it was an easy material to come by. And, 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 uh, it, I'm trying to get the quote here. I'll get it eventually. Ellicott said this in his commentary. This was deliberately adopted by the Baptist as reviving the outward appearance of Elijah, who was a hairy man. <laughs> And girt with a girdle of leather, and the rough garments that were worn in Zechariah 13, verse 4, by the prophets, the contrasted by the dress of the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees of the day. How did they dress? They wore long robes. 
uh, and gorgeous apparel and things of that nature. This was not John the Baptist. By the way, anybody know what tribe John the Baptist was? All right, this is pop quiz. What tribe was John the Baptist from? He was a, well, his dad was a Levite, specifically of the priestly order because he was in the temple. What was John to be when he turned 30? A priest of some sort. So we would expect someone of a Levite of a priestly origin to be out there wearing priestly clothes and doing the priestly work. He was not acting as a priest. He was acting as a prophet. And he was pointing people to Jesus Christ. John Gill said this, Jews called John an high priest. He was indeed of the priestly lace. His father was a priest, but he did not wear a priestly girdle nor any of the priestly garments. This was a setting aside of the office that he, by blood, was supposed to have for a greater cause. The dress was humble, so was the diet. Uh, how many of you all are anxious to eat locusts when you get done here? Oh, by the way, that's not what I have downstairs. <laughs> I just got lunch meat and bread. But, so there's no locust on the menu or grasshoppers was probably more, more what we're talking about here. Um, uh, so so he, he chose, but what does locust and wild honey tell us about, his, about, about him? Well, he, first of all, tells us he wasn't feasting and banqueting. He wasn't dressed in gorgeous clothes and he wasn't feasting and banqueting. Uh, he was living off of wild honey, that which was found, that which was provided him of God, by God himself. He was, it tells us of his dependency in, upon God, not just, not just the setting aside of feasting and banqueting, but his dependence upon God about what God would feed him. Psalm chapter 81 tells us, I could have fed them with honey from the rock. Um, so, so he was. He, his diet showed his faith that God would be be providing for him. So, it also showed his respect for the dietary law. Locusts, of course, were were clean meats that could be eaten, <laughs> according to Leviticus. Um, it was also, according to Ellicott, something that spoke of his poverty. Uh, he was used by the by, it was locust was often used by the poor in Palestine and Syria, uh, commonly salted and dried and cooked in various ways, pounded and fried in butter. Sounds yummy, don't it? <laughs> uh, has anybody ever had grasshoppers before? Like I said, this is probably what we're talking about. Is it was his diet? Now, now as we're reading this, I, I don't think what we need to learn from this is that we need to adopt a John the Baptist diet and John the Baptist dress code. There is nothing here that says all Christians that are following Christ need to start eating grasshoppers and wearing camel hair. Uh, so we're, the, the, everybody makes a fad out of all kinds of stuff. I know the Daniel diet has got really popular there for a while, and people were supposed to uh, eat porridge, I guess, four times a day or, or, or whatever, what, or pottage, pottage, whatever pottage is. Um, and so, so this is not this is not meant to be normative. We are describing, though, the humility and modesty of a man who is simply relying on God, putting all of his work in dependence upon God. He wasn't seeking to be envied or noticed, not in the sense of outward things. His focus was on a message. And because of that, people went out to hear him. 
and he was able to speak with authority, with real authority, and be heard. So that's just my comments there on verse 6. You can take those for what they're worth. I want to get into the message. John had a clear message. What was the clear message of John? Verse 7. He preached, saying, and we don't always get in translation uh, because it ends up being bulky, I guess. Mark's using the imperfect here. He was preaching. This was what he was doing. This is an iterative idea of something he kept doing or a customary idea of what, what, what did John used to do. Well, this is what he used to do. This is what he used to preach. So when we're describing this here, he preached in verse 7. What follows is, is the centrality of his message. This is what John was preaching Every time he got up, this was the centrality of his message. This is what he was repeatedly, customarily, iteratively saying. This was the content then. The content was very simple. There is one coming. Not there will be one coming. There is one coming. He preached that one was coming, that one was presently on the way. And again, this is not accidental to the preaching of, of John the Baptist. This isn't something that, you know, uh, Josephus will come along later and he'll just give this long, uh, long description of John's ministry. But, but this was the central thing. This was what John was about. Um, uh, the whole tenor of it. John witness of himself. If you want to turn to John chapter 1, verse 25... This, he, he zeroed in on this purpose in and of himself. He says, And they asked him and said unto him, John 1, 25, And they asked him and said unto him, Why baptize you then, if you be not the Christ, nor Elias, nor that prophet? We'll come back to this idea in a second. John answered them and said, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you know not. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latched I am not worthy and unloose. And then he went on in that very context to talk about, this is why I'm here. This is why I'm baptizing. is because of this one that is coming. That's why I'm out here. So the preaching of the one coming... Uh, was central to his message. It was also done with a sense of immediacy. The sense is, there is one coming among you that is already there. There is a sense of immediacy. Uh, right after he identified him clearly, he states, This is he who I said, John 1.30, if you're still there, This is he who of, of whom I said after me that is coming, which is preferred before me, for he was before me, and I knew it not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel, therefore am I come baptizing. So his message was not, again, a future tense message. I am coming. His message is 
A present tense active message. There he's coming right now. He's on his way right now. From this, I want, to, I want to gain three superlatives out of this. I want to zero in this today, and I, and I didn't do a bad job just condensing the whole eating locust thing. So I was thinking that would take me 20 minutes, and it's only been five or ten so far, so we're, we're doing good. Uh, I want to talk about the three, three superlatives here. He is mightier, than, the one coming is mightier than I am. The one that's coming is, is more honorable than I am or more sufficient, and the one that is coming will have a greater ministry than me. That's the three superlatives that John marked out. First, let's talk about these just one by one, and this is what we're going to deal with today. First, he was mightier than John. This is a testimony of John. There is one that is coming that is mightier than I. The first three comparisons is a comparative adjective uh, that compares the might of John to the coming Messiah. So John is taking himself, he's saying, look at me. The one that's coming is greater than me. The one that's coming has more might. And this may seem like a very odd comparison. You don't want to know why? Because you and I read the story backwards. <laughs> We read the story uh, like, we're, like, like, uh, like you're reading Hebrew. You start from the right to left. We, we, we know what's coming. We know what Christ is going to do. We know what all the miracles he's going to do. I want you to fit yourself here in the, in the, in the uh, aspect of the people that were on that day. Christ had not yet come. Christ had not yet done any miracle. Christ had not yet risen from the grave. Uh, the gospel has not yet gone out. But what do you have? So we read the story backwards, uh, and we say, well, John didn't do any miracles, John never rose from the grave, John never did any things, why is he making this very, very odd comparison? But reading the narrative forward, I want you to stick yourself in the mindset of the people that were hearing him for a second, in that moment. John was a mighty man. You want to know the proof of it? For some reason, they were drawn to him. They were coming from every aspect. We, you got to hear. You got to hear John the Baptist. He, he, he is, he is preaching the truth. He is preaching with authority. He is doing these things. Uh, I want, want just consider what we know about John in that context. His mighty words and character drew them. Even Herod, Herod, was afraid. Of John the Baptist. The king was afraid of this man. In fact, when Jesus started preaching and started doing mighty works, who did Herod think it was? He thought it was John again. I thought I got rid of John, and John's back. He said, and that's why, and that's why he's doing miracles. Herod made that connection. He said, that's why the mighty things that he's doing is because he is John. So even wicked King Herod uh, saw the might of this man and trembled at him and was afraid to even touch him and even believed that, that John was risen from the grave when he heard about Jesus doing mighty works. He was seen as having authority. They, the, what were they asking? Are you Elijah? 
Are, 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 are you that prophet? You know what they mean by that prophet, right? Moses prophesied that there would be a prophet that would come that was going to be like him and like him that they would have to hear him completely, that he'd have that authority. Or you, you must be that prophet. You must be Elijah. That is the authority that they saw him with. Uh, they believed that he was even possibly, Luke 3.15, the Christ. They said, there's, they, they saw John and they said, this, is this the Christ? Is this the person we're waiting for? Uh, why? Because he had authority. He saw, they saw him as having strength and the ability to affect. There would be, but there would be a greater con- conqueror yet to come. There, even what Jesus Christ would say to them in Matthew 14, he says, among those that are born, to, born of women, there is no greater than John the Baptist. <laughs> There's, up to this point, there's been no greater. He is the summation of the law and the prophets. The belief that after John died was, there, was, uh, was, uh, was the great ministry of Christ was due to Christ being John was not just something that was held by Herod. It was something, Matthew 6, 14, he says, Who do people say, I the Son of Man am? And, say, and what did they say? Some of them said, some people say you're John the Baptist. That is how great this man was that stood before them. And John 10, 10 41, they said, John did no miracle, but all things that John spake of this man were true. The true power lied not in John, but in the one that came after him, but they saw him in this light. Okay, that, that, that's the least of the three comparatives to talk about, but I, I don't want us to see this as an odd thing. There comes one mightier than me, that this, that this was impactful part, because so, they were putting a lot of hopes. They saw a lot of greatness, even to the point, you know, even after John was dead, the Pharisees were afraid to speak evil of him. You remember that, right? When he asked them, when Jesus asked them the question, when they brought the coin out, or was it the coin? Uh, well, well, I forgot what the question was that, that they asked him. And he, and he says, I'll also tell you something. Was, what? By what authority do you teach these things? And he says, I'll ask you a question. And he asked about John the Baptist. Did, the Baptist, did John the Baptist, uh, was his authority from heaven or from, from men? And what, were, what affected their ability? They, they feared the people because everyone took John to be a prophet. They were still afraid to talk bad about John the Baptist long after he was dead. And John says, there's coming one that's mightier than me. The second comparison was an explanation of the first. Why was Christ mightier? He was mightier because he was more worthy than John. Continue reading here. He says, There cometh one mightier than me after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. He's more worthy. The words are simple to understand. I don't really have to preach these words here or even expound upon them. A lowly servant would perform this task. This is the lowest of all possible servants. And John says, I'm not even worthy to be that one. The one that's carrying the shoes of the master and untying the shoes of the master. The one bending and stooping. I am not worthy of even doing the most menial 
servile task. He is far worthier than me. This is the spirit of John. He's going to say that after Christ is pointed to. What's he going to say? He, he's the, John's the one that says, he must increase and I must decrease. I, I, I fear that uh, we've got it backwards in American churches today. I must increase. It's always about me increasing and God just needs to get me. Right, going back to the Super Bowl stuff. Uh, uh, my goodness. I, I, never mind. I already harped about it the first hour. <laughs> but but this is this he must increase. I'm not unworthy to even do the most servile thing or I am an unprofitable servant. We don't speak like that in Christian circles today. Um, he he attributes something why is Christ mightier? Because he has more dignity, because he has more worth, because he has more honor than I do. Uh, The the word here speaks of the sufficiency of a thing. And Paul spoke of us being insufficient. We we, we should adopt something here from the picture. Like like I said, we're not necessarily getting the norms of the Christian life. But but we, we see this with God's servants all over. Paul says, who's sufficient for this thing? Who's sufficient? God is the one that's sufficient. My sufficiency comes of Him. He, and that word actually means sufficiency. I am not sufficient. He is sufficient. It comes from the root meaning to arrive or come to something. Whatever, whatever I think of myself, I've not arrived. I'm not, I'm not even worthy to do the smallest thing. And that's the testimony of John the Baptist about the superlative character of Christ. And consider this in comparison. What a comparison this is to a mighty man like John. John was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's belly. But Jesus had the Spirit without measure. Uh, The connection of all this becomes apparent in the following verse, but the difference here is obvious. John is a servant, and he saw himself as a servant. What does this mean he sees Christ as? Lord. Christ is the master, and he's but a servant. John saw himself as a sinner. We're not going to necessarily uh, get this in, in Mark, but in the narrative here in Mark, uh, it's not something he highlighted, but what did when Christ comes to him for baptism? What does he? What is the first thing that John says when Jesus steps out into the water and submits to baptism? I'm the one that has a need to be baptized. John, so John saw himself as a servant and Christ as Lord. He saw himself as a sinner in need of Christ, and Christ is the Savior. John saw himself as unworthy for the most menial task for his Lord, unworthy to take his shoes off and carry them. The one coming was before him for all eternity, the Lord over all. So that gets the second imperative. Now I want to hurry up before uh, I put you all to sleep. So the third comparative, we need to dwell more deeply on this. I indeed have baptized you with water. But he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. He's more mighty. He's more sufficient. And therefore, he has the greater ministry.
The final comparative is what we would call this on one hand, on the other hand comparison. Uh, the technical term is a men-day comparison. Uh, where John is comparing his ministry to the greater ministry of Christ. John says, on the one hand, compare it, look at my ministry, I baptize with water. But when the one that comes arrives, he's going to do something greater. His baptism is not going to be water. I hate to break it to the church of Christ or anybody that believes in baptismal regeneration. The water doesn't save, Jesus does. One was done by John, the other was done by Christ. One was in, by, or with water, and the other was in, by, or with. You take your pick of those three prepositions. The, 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 the genitive there would take either, or the dative would take either. But the other was in, by, or with the Holy Spirit. There will be a greater baptizer one day than John, he's saying. Imagine hearing that. These people coming, to him, coming and submitting themselves to what John was preaching and going down into the water, say, uh, uh, believe, uh, confessing their sins and believing some, something about that, that, that it cleansed them in some way, and him saying, there's a greater baptizer than me. For who was this baptism? Well, it's for the sinner. John could offer only water, he said. He could only offer it as a symbol of repentance. Christ could offer an immersion in, with, or by the very Spirit of God. One was unto repentance and the other was unto reconciliation, the other being greater. One is a washing to be presented to God, the other is to be immersed in God Himself, in the Holy One Himself. One will obviously have a greater effect. One looks for salvation yet to come. There's one coming, so get baptized. Uh, The other experiences salvation. Those who maintain, like I said, the doctrine of baptismal regeneration through water run into serious problems in this text. I, I want to just reiterate this. Here, the Spirit is not water. Here, what Christ Christ does is not through the medium of water. All water can do is point to Christ. And we gladly do it. We gladly baptize. We'll gladly give anybody who confesses Christ to be their Savior a chance to openly confess it through baptism. Just like John had his purposes that were very close to that in his baptism. All the water can do, though, is point to what Christ does. Christ is the greater baptizer and does a greater work, the greater work of salvation. John, I I gather from this that John would not have any of his followers dependent on his baptism. How can we look at these words and say John was teaching baptism? He, He was preaching baptism. He was doing baptisms. But he's turned around and would say, and remember, this is what he was keep saying. This is what he was constantly preaching and saying. This baptism is not sufficient. But there's one coming that will do a sufficient work 
This doesn't undercut the importance of the water, but elevated the surpassing glory of Christ. Now I want to get into a little bit about what it means. And I'm trying to see how much notes I left and whether my phone's going to die before I lose them. Um, Mark omitted a term here that may be important. Or in John, he says, "He shall baptize you with the water. He shall baptize you with the Spirit and fire." Right? Uh, why did Mark leave that off? I don't know. It's possible that it just wasn't relative to, relevant to the Roman reader. Uh, maybe it meant something specific to the Jewish reader, as they, and therefore to the Jewish audience that read Matthew, it meant something. Uh, picturing maybe the altar, the fire, the consuming fire that sanctified the offering, or so on and so forth. But it was... Um, we, we do know that there was fire at Pentecost, the pouring, and, and there was a picture of the pouring forth of the Spirit uh, there. Maybe the fire, fire intended also to speak of final judgment, which was, not, which was important to the, for Matthew to include, but maybe not the focus of what Mark was trying to say. Uh, the Jewish scriptures reference the expectation of the pouring forth of the Spirit. I want, I'll do... I do think this is important. Proverbs one twenty three: I will pour out my spirit unto you. Joel chapter 2, I will pour out my spirit upon you. Here we have the promise. He will baptize you with the spirit. That, that would not have had a, been immediately accessible to the Roman reader, but I, no doubt it was important because this was an important part. He shall baptize you. All three synoptics have this phrase. What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Now, if we ask our Pentecostal friends, what are they going to say? They're going to say that this is something that continues to happen over and over when we, when we get the, the anointing of the Spirit. And then we, then we uh, well, now they're more about prophecy. Than, but a generation ago, they were more about the ecstatic experience of speaking in tongues and things of that nature. And, and we have to say that they're wrong. But what is it? We, we, we need to say what it is. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is the experience of every believer that comes to Christ. Colossians 1, for instance, being baptized in Him. The baptism of the Holy Spirit and the descending of the Spirit of the Father, we notice how they follow one another for the reader. No doubt anybody who first read Mark is going to make a connection Here's the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit that is, and here in verse 10 is the Spirit descending upon Him. Their proximity lends a picture of what Christ will do for all believers. What is it historically? This baptism was, again, not of water, but part of the manifest work of Christ for the church. Turn to Acts chapter 1. After the resurrection, Christ himself references this event. He shall baptize you with the Spirit. Christ references it. Acts chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. He commanded them to wait for the promise of the Father, which says, Ye have heard, as ye have heard of me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days from now. The immersion of the Spirit 
is related to the presence of God with His people, empowering them to do His will. Because what are they going to do in that same context if you're still in Acts? Acts 1.8. But you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall talk ecstatically in unknown tongues. You shall be witnesses unto me. Christ commanded, commented on that yet in another place where he said this, that the Holy Spirit will be in you a well springing up into everlasting life, John 4, 14, compared to John 7, 38, where he says it will well up unto you unto everlasting life. What a... The whole the baptism here being spoken of is simply this. Christ's work bringing us into fellowship, full fellowship with the Father. It's not something we're seeking and we're praying for. It's something we have by virtue of being reconciled, being baptized in him. It tells me this. It tells me that the single, one of the single defining traits of every believer is the work of the Holy Spirit in them. Which spirit we have because Christ mm-hmm. poured him forth upon us. The Holy Spirit does what for His people? Well, everything. Everything we have, we we have virtue of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit works in His church. He gifts His church. He moves in His church. He makes Christ the center of all that is done in His people. The people of God are, it's very simple. At least it's simple in my mind, and we can probably argue about this all the, all day but we are baptized by one spirit into one body it's the work of God among the church the people of God are those who know their God through the spirit that was poured out upon them by Jesus Christ that's the most simple way I can describe what's happening here now the question for all of us is is do we have the work of the Holy Spirit among us Because this is the work of Christ. This is the manifest work of Christ for all of His people to pour forth the Holy Spirit upon them. Does the Holy Spirit define your life? Is He gifting you? Is He working in you? Is He working among us? Is He part of the fellowship? Is He part of of this? Because that is what is being directly spoken of. As Christ begins from this moment to have the Holy Spirit descending upon Him as He continues throughout the rest of the narrative to do all this by the Holy Spirit and to offer Himself up through the eternal Spirit and then to pour that Spirit upon us. The question that was asked in Acts chapter 19, have you received the Spirit since you believed, tells us that this is an identifying mark to know the fellowship and the pouring forth of God's Spirit. And not as witnessed by 
not by not as witnessed by you having an ecstatic speech or or running around or barking like a dog or doing anything like that or and this is not water baptism or going through going through motions of the church is the holy spirit working in you i'll leave that question for us to ponder on as we go forward but this was the message of john the baptist this is what he was repeatedly saying repeatedly preaching there's one coming he's mightier than me he's more worthy than me and his ministry will have greater consequences for the sinner than mine ever will. And we are partakers of the giving of that very ministry today. I hope you receive something from the Word of God this morning. Let's stand and be dismissed. Let's be dismissed in, uh, with that chorus, I want to do thy will.